Good morning, everyone. For those of you who weren't here last week, it was awesome. <laughs> um, I'm glad a few of you remembered what it was that we were looking at. Just to give you a recap, because it might help, just to go over a few of things that we looked at last week. We saw from a brief look at the book of Amos that our ability to wander off from God's purposes is legendary. We can get things horribly wrong. We can end up so far away from God's vision for us that we end up almost on a different planet. And it's possible, and it happens. We get seriously messed up, and it's nearly always the poorest who suffer when we wander away from God's purposes. And God calls us as a community who bear his name to be a prophetic people, to be like Amos, to see the mess, to be willing to see it, and then to be willing to bear some of that burden, to be willing to take some of the strain for our generation, and then to take courage and to speak up and also to pray. We're to live prophetically and subversively as part of a different society that is full of the beauty and the grace of God. Amen? That's who we are as the true people of God. So I want to begin to start by, I want to begin at the end really. I want to look at the last chapter of Amos. So why don't you turn there to Amos chapter 9. I want to look at God's big vision for humanity. Where it's all going. How it's all going to end up. Because unless you know where you're going, it's really hard to find the way, isn't it? So Amos and chapter 9, we're going to start from verse 11. Has anyone got the page number? 924. 924. 924. Okay, if you start finding Amos on 924. Okay. In my Bible it says, a promise of restoration. In that day, declares the Lord, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. That saying, the house of David, it, it encapsulates so much. In David's time, he, he was like a best friend of God. And he was a passionate worshipper. He was someone who was sold out for God for the vast majority of his life. He messed up as well, which is comforting for us. Um, but he was one that was described as a man after God's own heart. And during the days of David, people drew very close to God. Uh, the, the, the doors of the temple were always open. The, door, the doors of the tabernacle. The, the Ark of the Covenant which was the symbol of God's presence, was brought right into the heart of the life of Israel. It was a, an, an amazing time of being true to the covenant of God. That's what that means, to restore David's fallen house. Verse 12, Israel will possess what is left of Edom and the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken and he will do these things. So God is going to put the people of God at the centre and they're going to have authority. And they're going to rule with God in righteousness. And a time will come, 
says the Lord, when the grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. I love that picture. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. This is a time of plenty, a time of, of God's blessing, a time of prosperity. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. So we've got a bringing together of God's people from all over the world, a drawing together, a bringing into unity and a fellowship. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands. They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. It's going to be a creative time. It's going to be a time of meaningful work and reward for our labor. It's going to be a time of co-creating with God and enjoying the fruit of that. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So God wants to bring about a restoration. A restoration that's not just going to fall away again. A gathering of God's people from around the world. It's going to know righteousness and justice and peace in covenant with God. And when he establishes that, that new community, it's not going to be uprooted again like Israel's history has been. We looked at it last week, the ups and downs of Israel's history, the coming back to God and then the turning away from him. This is going to be a new thing. <clears throat> Worship, plenty, unity, stability, creativity, dignity. For all, not just for the privileged few. There will be no more religious pretense or arrogance, just a global community of people who humbly and passionately love God and love one another. That's what God's promised right throughout the scriptures. That's where the Bible finishes. That's where the world will arrive one day. A brand new, stunningly, fully restored and matured heaven and earth. And the only way to live beautifully in a beautiful land is to allow God to deal with our hearts and beautify us from the inside out. It's actually sin and selfishness that destroys countries, ultimately. When sin and selfishness get woven into the norms of society, it always creates a divide between rich and poor. It always uses power to protect the interests of the rich. And it always results in the exploitation of the poorest and most vulnerable. Always. Always. You look at any country of the world, especially where corruption is quite unbridled, and you'll always find those things are in place. It can be dressed up in lots of different ways, but that's what happens. The only remedy is a revelation of our sin and a cleansing from our sin and our selfishness and a widespread held conviction that we need to live by a completely different standard. And the ability to live by that conviction when nobody's looking. 
is so deeply held that we'll do that in our secret lives as well as in the times where we're going to be judged and counted by our communities. That's the only way that countries are going to be restored. It sounds impossible. And it is with fallen human beings. But it isn't with God. It isn't with God. Only God can turn slave traders and betting shop owners and drug barons into servants and fathers and mothers and prophets of the new way of God. God can do that. The gospel, the word of God applied by the Holy Spirit, is the greatest force for good in our world. It still is today. It has been through periods of church history where we've seen whole countries and societies transformed by the gospel. The gospel is still the most important, powerful agent for transformation in the world today. John Watts, who wrote the song we just sang, Amazing Grace. He's an ex-slave trader turned songwriter. He coined that line, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. John Watts had lived years of his life exploiting the poor, brutally exploiting the most vulnerable people on earth for his own gain, for his own profit. And yet when the gospel hit him, it transformed him from the inside out. And he was able to write those incredible words. He was able to, he describes his years in the slave trade as being lost and blind. When society has lived long enough, miles away from the ultimate dream of God, it becomes blind to its own brokenness. Morality has no basis to work from. And you can't clearly identify right from wrong and things that just are from things that should never be. That's what happened in Israel. In chapter 3, verse 10, God says, My people have totally forgotten how to do right. Totally forgotten. They've become totally blind as to what right is supposed to look like and what wrong is in their society. So God sent Amos to open their eyes and to give them a reality check to show them how far sin and selfishness had led them away from God's purposes for them. And therefore to give them a last opportunity for transformation, to change, and to start to live differently. So this prophecy, when we read it through, it can seem harsh, and it is, and scathing, and judgmental, but actually it's a gift. It's a gift of of revelation for the people that have fallen so far away from God's best. It's a loving God sitting them down and saying, open your eyes. See what's going on. See how far you've fallen and turned. Chapter 5, verse 14 says, do what is good and run from this evil so that you may live. That's the heart of a father trying to turn back his sons and daughters from destruction. In fact, in, in, that cha- in that chapter, chapter 5, four times, it says something along the lines of, turn, come back, do what is right, return to me. That's God's heart here.
This prophecy is supposed to be like a measuring rod for their society, or a plumb line, as it says in chapter 7. Let's read it. Chapter 7 and verse 7. This is a vision that God gave Amos, and I'm glad it's included here. Verse 7 says, Then God showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. That's a heavy weight on the end of a string, just to make sure that it's completely vertical. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore their sins. I understand this plumb line to be God's talking about Amos' message. God shows Amos this straight wall. He shows Amos what Israel is supposed to look like. What he's called Israel to be. This, this country that is upright and beautiful and solid and stable. A society that you can build upon because it's sound. And he says, I'm going to show you through my word just how far you've linked. Just how far you've really gone from my purposes. I will no longer ignore your sins because they're destroying your country, the country of Israel. We need the plumb line of God. It's the only thing that we have to truly measure how things are. Without it, we can come up with all kinds of ways that we can live and we can call them right, but that doesn't make them right. Actually, we need God's justice. We need God's word. We need God's revelation. It's the only thing that we really have to measure our lives against that is true and straight. And who does God hold primarily responsible with this plumb line? He says, I will no longer ignore all their sins. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined, and the temples of Israel will be destroyed. I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Who does he hold responsible? The religious system and the state. Both. Both are responsible for this corruption. Both are going to give an account before God. And so I got to thinking, is that the same in the UK today? Does God hold both the state and the religious system to account for the state of our society? Will our MPs and lords who create and administer policies and laws in this country give an account for the decisions they've made? And given that God has a fierce protectiveness for the poor, will he not expose completely whose interests those political decisions were made to serve? I think he will. And what about the other group that he holds responsible here? The religious leaders. Will those who teach the word of God and facilitate worship also give an account for the things they taught and the kind of worship they encouraged? It's a rather sobering thought. Who would dare to be a pastor? 
you guys have got to pray for me. Seriously, I'm not, that's not just rhetoric. It's important how we administer the word of God. It's important how we make laws that will affect other people, especially the most vulnerable people in this country. And it's important how we understand God's heart and we interpret his word. Because those are the things that actually shape society very powerfully. And I believe that everything that's been said and everything that's been uh, initiated through the government will be held responsible before God. And so we need to pray for our leaders. And I really value your prayer uh, as a pastor. And, and all the other church leaders that you know, pray for them. Because we will give an account. And I see this in the Gospels. I think Jesus was very clear about who was accountable for the corruption in his day. Both the state and the religious system, right? Jesus spoke out against both. He specifically says that all will be judged according to how we have treated the poorest among us. We can read about it in Matthew 25 from verse 31. So it's not just the government and the religious leaders who need to wake up, it's everybody. Ultimately, Amos is addressing everyone in Israel who has rejected God's word and endorsed the disgrace there. And so we want to hear what the word has to say to us, right? We need that plumb line of God. We need to know how our lives are measuring up. I don't think there are many MPs and judges in this morning. So let's focus mainly on Amos' words to the worshippers and to those who hold positions of influence and power within that society. Because all of us, to one degree or another, have influence. All of us have an ability to use the positions God's given us for good or for ill. So let's go there. Let's turn to chapter 8. I want to read verses 1 to 5. This is a vision of ripe fruit. Then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision. I saw a basket filled with ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. I replied, a basket of ripe fruit. I love it. It just says exactly what he sees. It's like catchphrase. <laughs> then the Lord said, like this fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment. I will not delay their punishment again. In that day, the singing in the temples will turn to wailing. Dead bodies will be scattered everywhere. They will be carried out of the city in silence. I, the sovereign law, have spoken. Listen to this, you who robbed the poor and trampled down the needy. You cannot wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so that you can get back to cheating the helpless. So the people, they were turning out to church. They were giving their offerings. They were singing enthusiastically. And then spending the rest of their week cheating people. God is clear to them. Authentic life as God's people isn't about just about singing and the offerings we bring. It's not measured primarily in the place of worship. It starts at home and in our workplaces. Our worship is measured in our dealings with people, buying and selling cars, making decisions for elderly relatives, popping round to care for a sick neighbour, 
or not. Looking after our employees, speaking about our bosses. It's in those things that our love for God is really revealed, actually. God is saying you can't mistreat your fellow man and then come to worship. You can't do it. You can't worship me and then go out and mistreat people. He's never going to accept worship like that. If you don't worship me by treating people with value and dignity, your offerings and songs to me on Sundays will be a waste of time. Worse than that, they'll be an abomination to God. They'll be an offence. Amos 5 verse 23 says this. He says, Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to your polished music sessions. I can't stand them. That's strong words, isn't it? Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So our worship on Sundays, they can only have integrity when it flows out of justice and holiness in our normal everyday life. We can all turn it on for two hours on a Sunday morning. It's the rest of the week that trips us up. Without the desire and the attempt to care for people, our worship on Sundays or in our small groups is only a show. And it's actually become something that's not really about God at all. It becomes something that we do for ourselves to make ourselves look or feel better. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, uh, let me read it. If you come to the place of worship and are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, everyone say first. First, Go and be reconciled with that person, then come and offer your gift. What comes first? Our dealings with people, how we treat people. And it's interesting that Jesus said, if anyone has anything against you, it doesn't say if you have anything against someone else, go and deal with them. It says, if anyone has anything against you, if you've mistreated somebody, go and deal with it. Put that right first, then come and worship. It always comes first. So our everyday life, our everyday worship is always primary. It's always the place of authentic worship. Then, and only then, can our Sunday gatherings make sense to God and be a delight to Him. And He's delighted to meet with us when this is like the overflow of a holy life. Now, from this amazing book of Amos that I hope you're getting into, I'm going to give you five ways that people break God's heart and ultimately break their covenant, their relationship with God. Number one, forget everything that God did for you while you were weak and oppressed. This is something that these guys did. Forget everything that God did for you while you were weak and oppressed. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel and Judah, against the entire family that I rescued from Egypt. From among all the families on earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. 
This is why these words are so strong and so scathing. Because these are not a people that haven't known the grace of God. They forgot where they came from. They forgot how hard their life was before God came in and rescued them and gathered them up and restored them and gave them dignity and gave them their own land. The oppressed have become the oppressors in this story. And I want to say it's hard to mistreat people when you're full of the kindness of God. It's hard to mistreat people when you remember all that God has done for you. See, every single one of us were lost. Every single one of us were blind. Every single one of us had no real hope. We had no eternal life within us. Every single one of us were a slave to our, our, our struggles, our desires, our, uh, the mess that was going on between our ears. Every single one of us had dysfunction. We still do, but we're working through it. Every single one of us was estranged from God, lost in our sin, with death hanging over us. And God, in his kindness, reached out to us before we did anything right. Before we began to love like him, God loved us. He reached out anyway. It was in his grace that he found us and rescued us and brought us home. When we forget that, it becomes easier to oppress others. When we forget the kindness of God and the grace of God, the generosity of God, we become less kind, less gracious, less generous. It's the first thing that leads you to a break in the covenant with God. It's grace that keeps us holy. It's remembering how, God, how good God has been to us that keeps us treating people well. It reminds me of Jesus and the woman that, that washed his feet when he's there at a distinguished dinner party and a prostitute comes in and starts doing stuff with Jesus' feet and she's weeping on his feet and she's drying them in her, with her hair and she's, she's pouring expensive perfume all over his feet and there's an uproar in the room because it's not the done thing. And what does Jesus say? He says, whoever has been forgiven much loves much. And he says, whoever has been forgiven, forgiven little loves little. We are those who have been forgiven so much. Without God, where would we be? And yet we sometimes forget. If you are full of what God has done for you, you will love much. And you'll be generous with it. You'll be extravagant with it. And you won't care what anyone says about it. So that's the first thing. They forgot everything that God did while they were weak and oppressed. Second thing. Another way to break the covenant with God. Reduce people to small value. See them only as a means of getting something. Let's read chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honourable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. Imagine this actually happened. You know, this is the sort of thing that happened. They would sell slaves for just whatever someone was offering because they had no use of them anymore. So they'd sell them for a pair of sandals. But I think it sounds to me almost like a, a saying. You sell people for a pair of sandals, something that would maybe be familiar to their ears. It means that 
you've lost sight of the value of people. And you can reduce them for, to what you can get out of them or not get out of them. God hates it when we use people. When, we, when people are valued only as assets or liabilities and not people. Businesses often assess people this way. What is your worth to the company? If you drop in your productivity, then the company will cut out the dead wood. And this can be necessary, but there are ways of doing this that honour the person. Now, sometimes if, if a company needs to make some redundancies, there are ways and ways of doing it. They're not just company property. They're not just to be picked up and put down as desired. And God hates it when we lose sight of that inherent value that is in every single person. Everyone deserves to be treated as precious, even if they come to the end of that particular part of their job. What comes next? Chapter 3, sorry, chapter 2, verse 7. The people of Israel, they trample helpless people in the dust. They shove the oppressed out of the way. This term, to shove the oppressed out of the way, is like a legal term. It's about the justice system. They deny people justice. If we let the innocent suffer unjustly and say nothing, we are standing against God's purposes for us once again. There can be tremendous pressure sometimes to say, stay silent when someone's been wronged. Has anyone been watching the series Broken on BBC One? Hands? Okay, there's a few of you. I want to... I'll keep plugging things to watch. Um, but that's a good one to watch. Yeah. The series Broken. Sean Bean is exceptional in it. He's a brilliant actor. It's, it's basically about a Catholic priest uh, set up north somewhere um, in, in a very poor community. And this uh, amazing priest, he does what Amos does in that he, he takes the burden of his, his community on. You can just see how much he loves his community. He sees their pain. And he does what he can with limited resources to be a priest in that community. But there's a, there's, I think it's about session three or something, uh, that there's this horrible moment, horrible scene where uh, a young man um, called Vernon with uh, serious mental health issues is released from his supportive uh, centre, his hospital where he is, and he's sent home too early. Uh, he has an episode and... Um, the police get called, and the police massively overreact, and this, this guy gets shot for brandishing a knife, even though he can't see. And it's completely unnecessary. Uh, and it turns out that some of these policemen that have been trained to use their firearms have just been looking for an opportunity to use their firearms. Um, that they, uh, they escalated the situation um, so that they could use the, the tools they've been trained to use. And there's, there's one good copper in amongst them, who is just, cannot believe what's just happened. And then there's an inquiry. And this guy is under extreme pressure to shut up and not say what actually happened. Even though this poor guy's mother, uh, the only solace she has is getting to the bottom of this situation, having some truth so that she can move on with her life 
and some apologies from the police force. So he's in this position, do I protect my family? And do I say the right thing, say what happened, or do I uh, lie and say that everybody acted rightly? Um, and this poor woman will just never get justice. Difficult scenario. But it paints the kind of picture that we can find ourselves in sometimes. Not that one specifically, but there sometimes comes a time where you're in a moral quandary. Do I say what I've just seen? Do I speak up for something that is really wrong in front of my eyes? Or do I just stay silent and let it carry on, let it wash over? And somebody in all of this is going to get churned up in the process. Someone's not going to receive justice. That's what was going on in Israel. And God says, I hate it when the most vulnerable in our society get pushed aside and justice is not carried out. When people deserve to be stood with and defended. Number four, this is the second way to use people. Back to chapter 2, verse 7. So they trampled the, the helpless in the dust, they shoved the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. This is using people sexually. Now this could point to temple prostitution, which came in with Jezebel. Uh, the, her kind of Phoenician background, and there was a little bit of that going on in Israel from time to time. But I think it's more likely that the same slave girl was used as a concubine in families, like the family concubine. Outrageous. So this is about using people sexually. God hates it when people are reduced to sexual beings only. He hates it when people are, are abused or used sexually. We could talk about pornography. We could talk about promiscuity. We could even talk about selfish sex within marriage. It breaks God's heart. And it damages our covenant relationship with Him. It's important that we get that straight. It's important that we put the plumb line of God's righteousness up against our sexual lives. And if that's a problem for you, if you sense actually, I know what God's best in my life is, and I'm quite a way off it, get some help. Get some help. Throughout this book, God is saying, return to me. Come back to me. Bring it to me. Come as you are. I will restore you. And we can help you with that. And God will help you with that and he will empower you. But using people sexually, is it breaks God's heart. Don't let society tell you anything different. Number five, use your religion to justify your wickedness. That's another way to break your covenant with God. To incur God's wrath. Chapter 2, verse 8. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing that their debtors put up as, as security in the house of their gods. They drink wine bought with unjust fines. Do you remember I was telling you that the religious leaders were organizing orgies for the rich and so as not to get their fine clothes dirty, that they would take the garments that had been used as collateral against uh, loans that have been given to the poor so that they could buy food, they would take these best garments that have been given as collateral and they would spread those out on the temple floor so that they didn't need to get their own clothes dirty in their orgies. 
and they would, uh, they would impose fines upon the poor so that they had a budget to buy the wine for their parties. And they do this in the sanctuary of God before the altar. That's going to do it. That's going to get God's back up, right? I can't imagine how you could upset God more than that. And yet somehow that had become normal and been legitimized as a religious form of worship. The mind boggles how you can get from there to there, right? I just can't imagine it. But you know what? Through the centuries, so many atrocities have been done in the name of God. I could mention crusades and inquisitions, torture, slave trade, constant abuse of minority groups in God's name. It should never be. We can all find a Bible verse to clobber someone with if we choose to do so. There's enough verses in here that we can use to give someone a clout. But if we twist God's word to justify our own anger or lust, we will find ourselves on the wrong side of God's wrath. That's not what this Bible is given for. God is so gracious, but he's also just, and he's willing to say, enough, bring this wickedness to an end. Thank God. Turn back to chapter 8. A moment ago we read this vision of ripe fruit in the beginning of chapter 8. And I want to just talk about what, what I think this vision means. Then the Sovereign Lord showed me another vision and I saw a basket filled with ripe fruit. Then the Lord said, like this fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment. I will not delay their punishment again. The word used for this ripe fruit is like the last fruit of the season. It's like the end of the summer fruits. These are the, the they look great. They're, the, they're the, the, the best to look at. They're the most, uh, they're the things to be enjoyed the most. Like when the grape harvest finally comes in in September. It's amazing. But what comes after the end of the summer fruit? The winter. And it's as though God is saying, this may look amazing right now. You may look full of prosperity right now. You may feel like this is, this is, you've arrived and everything is okay between God. But I'm telling you, winter is coming. And God has a way of changing the seasons. God has a way of saying enough to certain things. I will not let this wickedness go on anymore. The outcry of the poorest amongst you has reached my ears and I'm not going to let this carry on a moment longer. Thank God that he does change the seasons. That he doesn't let things go unpunished indefinitely. That he does come and stand alongside the vulnerable of the earth. A time of plenty is coming to an end, says Amos. So what can we do? What can we do with what we see? Well, as well as living justly and seeking to be the people of God's beautiful future world, pulling that reality into the present. As well as doing that, we can pray. Prayer is a powerful tool. Chapter 7 is full of visions of judgment. 
but it's also full of supplications where the prophet sees exactly the state of what's going on and sees the, the collision course that this country that he's speaking to is on. And he stands in the gap between that country and God and says, God, would you just have mercy on these people? Lord, would you, in accordance with your grace, in accordance with your unlimitless, limitless, unfailing love, would you please respond to this country? Let them not career into the uh, consequences of their actions, but instead, would you give them grace? And sometimes, as the people of God, as prophets, we need to see what we see and then stand in the gap between that what we see in God and say, God, would you have your way in this situation? And would you be gracious? Because we know this is an outcry to you. Sometimes that's the best thing that we prophets can do. We can pray. We can pray, God, this situation is careering down a wrong road and people are going to get hurt. Lord, please turn us around. Don't give them what they deserve. Give them mercy. We can pray, God, would you drop your plumb line of heaven into this situation? Would you drop your plumb line of heaven into me, into our nation? May we get the revelation that we need to see how far we've leaned away from your truth and your purposes for us. God, would you use your plumb line once again? Would you open our eyes to see right from wrong? Let us pray for things to be worked out on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you help us to pray intelligently and to see things clearly? We can pray, God, would you let us not forget what you did for us? when you found us and healed us and restored us to dignity and set us free to live for you. We can pray, God, would you let us be part of the true covenant people who worship more in heart and in love for people than we do in outward song and in outward display. We can pray, God, please would you empower us to live as citizens of the nation that cannot be uprooted, this new heaven and new earth, Draw us together with all the others who worship you wholeheartedly like David did and release through us a wave of restoration and joy like that that we're going to see at the end of all things. We can pray. Our prayers are prophetic and they're powerful when we pray according to his word. I want to finish with a poem from Lucy Berry. It's called The Lion laid down with the lamb. And it reminds us of where God is leading us, just like Amos does at the end of his book. He leaves us on this future vision note. And that helps to keep us on course and to hear God's word for us. The lion lay down with the lamb. And the lion lay down with the lamb. And the lamb forgave the lion for being a lion. And the lion forgave the lamb for being a lamb. The Greek made friends with the Turk. And the Indians went round to the people from Pakistan and played cricket in their garden. And the West said, we are sorry. And the East said, beg your pardon. And the young man who murdered Stephen Lawrence knocked at his mother's door and said, yes, we killed your son. We didn't know him but we killed him. Yes, it's true, we hated you. 
the lion laid down with the lamb. On Kristallnacht, the Germans got on their knees and said to the Jews, Yes, it happened. We did it. All of it. Forgive us. In Rwanda and Chechnya, they heard the news round the world in every nation that it was reconciliation. It was true. We did it. We hated you. The Arabs and the Jews said, the Christians and the Muslims said, the black people and the white people said, that's enough now. I want to find out who you are. And all the people from the islands of the Caribbean cooked curried goat, and the French cooked snails and frog's legs, and the Chinese cooked something delicious but completely unidentifiable. <laughs> and everybody tried a little bit of everything and found it much nicer than they were expecting. The Japanese joined with the African dancing. The Africans had a stab at Cossack dancing. The Russians tried to master line dancing. The Americans were a great success at Morris dancing. The Welsh brought their harps to the party and everyone asked them to play. And the English went around quietly offering everybody a really nice cup of tea. <laughs> you have never heard such a noisy, peaceful time in all your life. And best of all, the children ran together, pink and brown, straight and curly, in a huge, loud, happy, swirling model, yelling, Yes, we did it, and we're sorry. And the lion lay down with the lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and that you still hold this glorious vision for your people. Lord, even though we have somehow strayed so far from your ideal, from the plan that you had for us, from your straight plumb line, Lord, we have leaned so far and we are broken and we are tottering, nearly falling so often. And yet your heart is still for restoration. You still love your people. You've never given up on that big vision. And you call us to be a people who are part of a future world where the sin and brokenness that has so ravaged the earth is not part of us. And Lord, we can't see the work of sin in our lives without you bringing your revelation. Lord, I pray that you give us the courage to turn away from things that we discover to be wrong. I pray that you'd open our eyes to your beautiful vision once again. I pray that your spirit would do a deep work within us, 
making us this covenant people who are about a different agenda in the world. Help us to take the strain in our generation and to carry that burden in our generation and to respond to need. Thank you for your grace over us. And I pray that you would empower us to live courageously as prophets as well as friends. In Jesus' name, amen.